Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host Alejandro Rojas. It is I, Alejandro. Thank you so much for being with me here again. And, well, I've got some news for you. Of course, uh, some of it you already know, and that is that I have changed the name back to UFO Think Tank Radio. Some good and some some uh, some different. So the good news is, is of course, uh, that's UFO Think Tank again. It's independent, and I'm doing my own thing once again. The bad news is, and this will be a bummer for some of you, Jason will not be joining us, at least in the foreseeable future. I really, really hope he does once again, because uh, I love the guy just like you guys do. And don't worry, we're still buddies, but uh, he... um, This show is independent of Open Minds now, so it's something totally separate, and uh, he is still working for Open Minds. And at least for now, we're going to not be able to work out him being on the show. So I know, I know, it's a bummer. I'm really bummed too. But the show will go on, and we'll continue to bring you UFO news, and we'll continue to bring you excellent guests, including our magnificent guest, for this week, who is none other than Mr. Kevin Randall. And this is exciting because Kevin Randall, um, as you uh, may or may not know, Kevin Randall is one of the main Roswell investigators. So he's been doing a Roswell investigation for quite some time. Of course, we've had Tom Carey and Don Schmidt on the show. Uh, He used to be partners with Don Schmidt, in fact, and uh, then he went off, I think he did another tour in Iraq, and then came back and started doing some more. That's right, in Iraq. Actually, Kevin Randall has had a long career in the Army. He's retired now as a lieutenant colonel. He served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. In Iraq, he was a battalion intelligence officer. And uh, so he's a busy fellow. In fact, he studied in journalism originally. Um, He's also got a master's and a Ph.D. in psychology. And he's got a master's in military studies. But he really went on to be more of a journalist and author. So he's written sci-fi. He's written a lot of different stuff. And uh, he's been into UFOs for a while. And we're going to talk to him about his origin stories. I've talked about this before. I love to talk to people about, you know, how they got started in the UFO field. I call it kind of an origin story because it's kind of like, uh, you know, with uh, comic book heroes, they all have their origin stories. And uh, we'll get into Kevin Randall's later on when we get him on the show. It's just surprising to me, actually, because I haven't had him on before. And he's such a great guest, uh, such a important person in this field and everything that uh, I should certainly should have, and I'm glad that I have now. He actually also was one of the writers of the movie that turned into the Roswell movie. We've had Paul Davids on at least once or twice, but Paul Davids was part of this movie and really kind of 
produced it and helped put it together. But it was a work of Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt that they took to make the movie, and they actually got to be on the set and consultants. Uh, if you're not aware, this is a movie that came out in the 90s, and it starred Kyle MacLachlan and Martin Sheen, some very famous people. So that's really exciting. So we'll talk to him about that whole experience coming up here in a little while. However, before that, as always, it's UFOs in the news. A lot of news this week. There's been a lot going on, so we have a whole lot to talk about. A lot of big stories, but this one is one I was particularly excited about. And that is that the Mars Viking robots found life on Mars. But this is not like the new rovers they have out there. This is the Viking robots, which were um, in, you know, this was a mission that happened in the 70s. So this data is 36 years old. So essentially, here's what happens. They, the, some scientists took this data from the uh, landers in the 70s, and they looked at it again. The data in the past was kind of written off. They looked at it and thought, well, this could be a sign of life, maybe not. But it was eventually written off. Well, some scientists have taken a new look, and they're saying, hey, wait a second here. This does, in their opinions, show um, signs of life. And this is, um, you know, it's a, above my head, it's chemistry and all this stuff. And maybe some of you uh, understand it a little more but essentially that they did find evidence of some uh, bacteria. So here we are again with the possibility of the discovery of life uh, in relations to Mars. What's interesting here is that these scientists are pretty dang confident in their findings, uh, but this news has yet to really make a real big deal. It's gotten kind of the rounds, and maybe we'll see a lot more of it uh, this week. It was uh, released by Discovery News, and this is just a brand new story. I mean, this just came out uh, just Thursday, so hopefully we'll see some more about it, but it's looking like the Viking lander could have found life on Mars. Now that would be, of course, pretty dang amazing. And uh, I can't wait to hear more about it. But uh, how interesting will it be if, you know, finally we have the answer? That it, indeed, not only is life abundant in the solar system, but it's on the very next planet out there, of course, not the closest. I think Venus is closer, but uh, it's a, it's our next door neighbor, for goodness sakes. So, uh, pretty amazing news. I'm really looking forward to that. More amazing news. Russia and Siberia are in the news again with another UFO landing, possible UFO landing. Some witnesses have described a bright glowing light that fell from the sky and uh, fell somewhere in Siberia. Nobody's quite sure what this was. This was uh, reported on Friday, 
and uh, they're still looking into it. Of course, we've seen some other things. Uh, not too long ago, there was uh, something tracked by the military. It turned out to be a bolide, uh, essentially just an asteroid. Another uh, object was found recently, and that seemed to be some part of a rocket. But this one is still, as of yet, unknown. So, uh, search teams are out there, and uh, hopefully we'll have some news soon. But it is pretty interesting um, that uh, we have yet another possible crash of something. And that's not all. Red lights uh, in Texas are still a mystery. So, we talked about this, I think, last week, where there were some flickering globes of light in the city. Now, officials are saying that uh, this is probably a hoax. Um, so we're not sure about this one, uh, but they're still looking into it. Uh, but uh, that's still going on, and that's made the news. More interesting, however, is this one. This is a possible UFO crash, and this one's really strange. Uh, this was reported on Thursday, and this was reported by a uh, witness... And one of those witnesses, uh, a second witness who was a police officer. So what they say they saw was some huge green glowing object the size of a whale falling from the sky and crashing into Bantam Lake in Connecticut. So, I mean, of course, this would have made a splash. And, of course, if we get to see more news about it, I'm sure... They're going to use that headline, UFO makes a splash in Connecticut. Anyway, people are reporting this giant object falling from the sky and landing in the lake. There have been people looking for it, and no one has found anything yet. But uh, there are several witnesses, including the police officers, so really interesting case. They're looking for it, but no one's quite found it yet. So, kind of weird. Very weird one there in Connecticut. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that. More news. Jets in England making sonic booms. Chasing a UFO? Maybe. The Sun just reported that uh, two RF, RAF, Royal Air Force, uh, Typhoon Jets, flew quickly across several counties, making sonic booms, waking people up and freaking them out. And witnesses have said they saw them chasing and checking out a UFO. And this UFO was sock-shaped, they say, because there's actually a picture in the sun. And I guess it's kind of sock-shaped. It really kind of looks like a cloud up in the sky, and you can see this. But witnesses said they saw this thing flying around, so that was the news. Well, official spokespeople have come out and said that uh, when these planes returned, they did not report any UFOs, and that, in fact, the reason why they were flying around is that uh, there was a civilian helicopter who said that, who accidentally issued a hijacked mayday. So that's kind of weird, you know. Um, I don't know how accidentally, you know, you send out a mayday saying, Mayday, mayday, we're being hijacked, we're being hijacked. And then, uh, oh, sorry, our mistake. 
I think you would know if you were being hijacked. That's just me. But uh, especially on a helicopter, you only have like five people in a helicopter, so you pretty much know who your guests are. I guess it may be someone pulled out a gun and uh, pulled the trigger. They called the the hijack line, and it turned out that the gun was actually a lighter, and they were only lighting up their cigar. One possibility? I don't know. Hopefully we'll hear some more about this, because I really do not understand how you can uh, accidentally issue a uh, hijack mayday. Anyway, in response to this mayday, these two jets flew across several counties in England, causing sonic booms, freaking everybody out. Some people said they saw them chasing around this UFO that someone somehow got a picture from, and it doesn't really say where this picture comes from, so I don't know much about that. But uh, they also disturbed some birds, I guess, uh, some rare birds, and they got a little scolded for flying above uh, these these osprey nests, which uh, they should not have done because they may, I guess, cause the birds to abandon the nest, and then these poor eggs are not hatched. So they got a good scolding, and they bloody well better not do that again. Anyway, moving on. Other news that has made uh, a lot of excitement, I guess I should say, this week. I can't remember what we talked about this one either. You know, without my good buddy, I can't remember what we talked about last week. But you know what? It's okay to cover things a couple times. And actually, I know we didn't talk about this, and that is uh, Mr. Lee Spiegel of the Huffington Post, good buddy of ours. He wrote about this and added to it. And that's this UFO video from South Korea. It's a very interesting video. You see this little white thing kind of floating along and then zips away. Uh, Benjamin Radford, I believe his name is, from Discovery. He writes for Little Life's Little Mysteries, and he's kind of uh, always debunking stuff. But he says he thinks it might have been a water droplet on the window of the plane that kind of was scooting along and then took off uh, up the window. And this guy videotaped it, and it looked like... It was an object that is separate from the plane. That's kind of a stretch. If you look at the video, you know, this thing does seem to be separate from the plane. It seems to be further away. Um, it is very interesting. Uh, we did talk about this last week because I remember mentioning that it was suspicious also because this YouTube account came up out of nowhere just for this video. But it's a very interesting video, and I guess the uh, person who took it is still anonymous but you're going to have to take a look at it yourself and go to uh the Huffington Post but one thing that Lee Spiegel did which is really cool is that he interviewed David McDonald the guy who runs MUFON about this he's a pilot himself who just kind of said yeah you know lots of people are seeing things he also talked to Richard Haynes uh who um runs uh the Na National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena and uh, Richard Haynes is a scientist who started studying UFOs uh, and a pilot, and mainly they're looking for the effects on pilots. And he also interviewed uh, FAA official, former FAA official John Callahan. And you might have seen this gentleman on the Disclosure Project, because he talked about how when he was on the FAA, there was this famous incident 
1986 where a Japanese airline uh, had seen a UFO and reported that. And actually, this made big news back in 86. That's way before my time, but not Lee Spiegel's. Sorry, Lee. But anyway, this made big news. John Callahan worked for the FAA. He was an upper-level, higher-level official. He says that Reagan Science Advisory uh, Board, people from his board and others, came to look at some of their radar data because they caught this thing on radar. They took the radar data and told Callahan not to say anything. Well, what they didn't know is Callahan had his own copies of this radar data that he has to this day, and he showed it at uh, the Disclosure Project uh, in Washington, D.C., um, in 2001, uh, the press conference they had. And uh, he's been on a couple television shows talking about that. But Lee Spiegel was also talking about pilots. And, uh, you know, Callahan plays into this idea is that pilots often do not report UFOs because they're uh, in fear of being ridiculed. And I have a friend who uh, that happened to. You know, they, they actually questioned his sanity and uh, didn't let him fly for a while because he was into UFOs. So that's the point that Haynes and these others are making is that, you know, pilots don't like to report this sort of thing. So it's a great story that you'll have to check out, uh, a long story with some really good history and some great interviews by Lee Spiegel. So that's all on this South Korean UFO sighting. Very interesting video. Check it out and see what you think. Also on the Huffington Post, our good friend Leslie Kane has written a new blog, and hers is an update on the Chilean UFO videos. She calls it Getting the Bugs Out, and essentially what she's saying is that uh, Benjamin Radford, here again, Benjamin Radford, interesting enough, you know, is really, he's following the UFO news out there pretty closely because, um, especially it seems Lee Spiegel's work. Because uh, whenever a story is written about or makes the news, Radford is out there kind of debunking it or looking for alternative answers, uh, prosaic answers as to what it may be in the video. And for the Chilean videos, which we talked about, of course, we made a big deal out of them because uh, the UFO Congress is really where the video was shown first. And that was uh, by General Ricardo Bermudez, who's director of Chile's um, UFO investigation group, an official group that's part of their FAA. He showed that video at the Congress. And, uh, you know, this is a video where he told me backstage when we're setting up for it. He said, you know, this is the most amazing video. This video convinced me that UFOs are real. Prior to that, he thought, you know, maybe they were mistaken identity. But uh, anyway, you know, uh, Benjamin Radford said what was probably seen in the videos is bugs. But he was referring to the videos that the Huffington Post posted. The Huffington Post posted three videos from one individual. What he neglected to add to the story, which was in actually my Huffington Post story, but that's about it. I don't think Leslie Kane wrote about it, so to Benjamin Radford's defense, he might not known about it unless he went to Safa's site and actually did some research or got his talk at the Congress and did some research that way. He would have known that there were actually seven videos in total, seven different witnesses. So it wasn't all this one witness who took 
this video. So if it was this one person taking the video, bugs might play a role. He said maybe even bees that were in the area. So if, you know, this guy's taking a video all day long and uh, there's bees flying around, that that would be a possibility. But we there's actually several different videos from different angles of these objects. And uh, the videos are similar with these, what looks like a metallic object off in the distance, you know, moving at extreme speeds. In fact, their astronomers uh, estimated those things moving at thousands of miles an hour. And their astronomers who are skeptics and don't believe in UFOs are the ones who looked at this and said, wow, you know, this is not a hoax. Uh, these are some metallic objects zooming around. So this is some weird stuff going on here. You know, astronomers don't mistake bugs, I don't think. That would be pretty sad if they did. Anyway, Leslie Kane is making the argument that, No, my friend, Mr. Radford, I believe you are wrong. Those aren't bugs. Those are UFOs. So, uh, we'll, we'll see if Radford has a reply to this, but uh, I hope he does. Because I'd like to see what he has to say, Mr. Smarty Pants. You know, it'd be interesting to get him on the show sometime. I have wanted to speak to him and see what kind of guy he is. Because I think I've said this before, and I'll say it again because I like to say it. But as a debunker. And, you know, it's good to be skeptic and skeptical. You know, I admit I'm skeptic uh, about a lot of stuff. But that just means that I'm taking a hard look at stuff. It doesn't mean I'm going to debunk everything, and I don't debunk everything. Some people think I debunk a lot, and I apologize, you know, and I don't certainly have it right all the time, but I'm just sharing with, i got to be honest with my audience, because I love you people, and if we're going to continue our relationship, strong relationships are based off of trust, and you need to trust me, and you know what, I'm not going to lie to you, and you can take that to the bank. Anyhow, uh, I've always said that, you know, kind of a debunker, someone who uh, just debunks everything and doesn't want to believe in anything. You know, history shows these people to be the big fools, the big suckers, the boneheads. You know, when you look at, and I don't even know the names of these people because I don't pay attention enough, but some of these people are rather famous. People have said, ah, the Wright brothers, what are they, crazy? You're not going to fly a plane up in the sky, what are you we're not birds. We're not meant to fly. I don't know if they talked like that or they had a similar accent, but that's a fun accent to kind of um, portray this sort of person. But anyways, they're out there saying, you know, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, and they look like damn fools when the Wright brothers are flying over them and saying, hey, hey, Bob, remember you said you could, we couldn't fly? What are you doing up there? You're flying. It's kind of Italian. Some of these guys were Italian. Actually, they were, because there are lots of people to Columbus, you know, saying, what are you doing? You can't fly to America. Why, that's not America. And he did it. He uh, he didn't fly, actually. He took a boat, because this was a while ago before the Wright brothers. But my point being that these guys who say you can't do something look like complete boneheads. When something is discovered that they say couldn't be discovered. When something is achieved that they say couldn't be achieved. So my point being, be the hero. The hero's the guy, you know, the Einstein sitting back there with this wild hair. 
saying, oh, you know, we can do this and we can do that, and everybody calling him a fool, and he proves it, and he does it. Those are the geniuses. I got an Einstein picture right here because I love the guy. He's a hero. So, you know, skeptics, I want to say be a hero, not a historic zero. You may feel like a hero right now because you're like, look at these boneheads. They think this is going on and there's nothing going on. And So you may feel like a hero now, but you're going to look like a damn fool down the road when some of this kind of uh, pans out to be real. Trust me, buddy. More news. Monolith object on Mars. Bum, bum, bum. So this is kind of, you know, what's funny is I saw the stories about this rock on Mars that looks kind of like a rectangular object. There's a big shadow being cast. The only place I've seen this story, and I follow all of the UFO stuff, you know, as as I'm proving here, as, as you all know, fairly closely. The only place... I've seen this story is in these stories where it says it's not anything weird. It's just this rock on Mars. And people are saying that it's a giant monolith. Well, who are these people? What are you talking about? They're not saying who, who these people are. They're just saying, oh, these boneheads are calling this a monolith when it's just a rock. And here we're proving it's a rock. Who are you proving this to? I don't know what you're talking about. Some people just, uh, here again, trying to look like they... Uh, are proving everybody wrong. Anyway, it is a very interesting picture, and I wish there were more details because no one goes into details. This object, okay, sure. And I never profess to say, oh, there's a giant monolith on, on Mars. It looks rectangular. They're saying it's pixelated. That's why it looks rectangular. But it's casting a pretty big shadow, and they're saying this thing actually isn't very big, even though it's got this big shadow. So I would love to hear... The stats, because they should be able to determine that with the shadow to tell me how big this thing is. Because, sure, it may not be big, it may not be uh, artificial, but it looks pretty huge. And even if it is this big natural feature jutting up into the air on Mars, I'd like to hear more about it, because I like space and I like space news. Give me some facts here, baby. That's all I'm saying. Another kind of uh, silly story. Well, it's not a silly story. It's a great story out there, but they're putting a silly spin on it. They're talking about Hubble Space Telescope sees a UFO. Oh, my gosh, UFO, Hubble, UFO. And you go to these stories, and there's a picture of another galaxy. So instead of just saying Hubble Space Telescope sees another galaxy, a cool-looking galaxy, they, oh, it's a UFO. It doesn't look anything like a UFO. They're trying to say that it looks like a UFO, and they're using the the uh, marketing spin to put UFO in their title to bring people to their site when you see just another picture of a galaxy. Now, I'm one of those weirdos, or I don't know, many of you are probably space geeky enough to say, to think that every new picture of a galaxy is beautiful and wonderful and spectacular. And this one is beautiful and wonderful and spectacular. But I'm sure people who, who find galaxies, pictures of galaxies, boring by now, because Hubble has a lot of them, are going to be like, what? It's another galaxy. Tell me something new. That ain't no UFO. Come on. So they're pulling your leg. It's all I'm warning you is when you see a story on Fox News, Space.com, 
MSNBC, all of these places are saying, oh, well, Space Telecom got a UFO. Don't get too excited because they're just talking about yet another galaxy with another boring name, by the way. NGC 2683 is the name of this galaxy. Boring. Let's call it something like... Um, uh, I have no idea. Here's a name, Francisco. Love it. All I'm seeing, someone on Facebook who's on this page, his name's Francisco. The Francisco Galaxy. That's cool. Let's fly to the Francisco system and go visit Jose Planet. That's fun. Those are some fun names. Instead of boring NGC 2683. Anyway, I have blabbed long enough, my friends. I apologize that it's just me blabbing away. I hope you found it interesting. But what you will find interesting is what's coming up, and that is my interview with Kevin Randall. All right, I am super excited to have, for some reason, for the first time on the show, I guess we just get so busy, It's I've been really dying to have you on the show since the Roswell event. But uh, we finally have Kevin Randall. Hello, how are you? I am fine, and I blame you for not being on the show before because you never contacted me. I know, you're right. It is completely <laughs> my fault because things just, you know, twirl and run and everything's going crazy. And and uh, finally, though, I, I'm really excited for the first of hopefully many times because, of course, you do a lot of research all the time. Yes, and it, and I find it becoming easier and easier thanks to the Internet. Right. All you have to be able to do is discriminate between the nonsense and the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And 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 that, that really is just sort of a comparison of various sites and seeing uh, what makes sense to you and how it all tracks together and kind of relating one bit of information to another, informa another bit of information so that you can kind of figure out... Uh, what is good, solid information, and what is just a little bit off-center, off off-kilter. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, there's quite a bit of off-kilter stuff out there, I've noticed. <laughs> well, the, the, th the problem with the Internet, and, and, and it's also one of the great things about it, is anybody can put anything up on the Internet that they want. So if they have real paranoid views of, of the um, uh, UFO phenomenon, if they're, they're really outside the box on that, they have the opportunity to put that stuff on the Internet. And those of us that follow a little bit more traditional path in that, uh, we can look at that stuff and say, yeah, well, that's a little far out for me, but, you know, it it may key something uh, in, in another bit of research I've been doing and suggest something to us. Uh, the best example is this, um, 19, this 18, 1852 story from Scientific American about this metal vessel blown out of solid rock, and there was a story in, uh, about, about it, and it mentioned Tubal Cain, and I was thinking, who's this Tubal Cain guy, and could he check on the internet and discover he's uh, a blacksmith from ancient times, and that it's become sort of a Masonic symbol as well, and so then you wonder, well, was this story put into the Scientific American for some kind of communication amongst the members of of the, the Masons, and there was a, a, a mention of this professor who should be consulted on this metal vessel that was found, and I thought it was just some made-up name, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a, a character from, from a, a, a story or something, 
and I just well let's Google his name and discovered he's <laughs> he was really a prominent scientist from from the mid 19th century. Came from Switzerland and had done a lot of work in um, anthropological and uh, paleontology uh, in the United States. So uh, he, without the ability to Google this stuff, I probably would have never found any of that out. So it's it's a wonderful tool. Right. That's what I, I love about it, and you know, not only can you get your work out there more, but there's you can learn for people who love to learn. You said you were watching a, you know, a science show just a little while ago. There's an endless amount of stuff to. You no longer have to go to the library and get an encyclopedia. You can learn from all of this stuff, and, and it's never-ending exploration. Of and, and 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 in a similar vein, you know. Uh, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica has stopped publishing a hard yeah, copy. Right. And you think about that in one way, that's kind of too bad. And on the other side of the coin is uh, now it's all electronic, so it's all there for everybody to to get to. Yeah. Although I'm sure you have to pay a fee to, to use their stuff. But, I mean, the Scientific American, I typed in to my search engine, Scientific American, June 1852, and found online. Somebody had put all of this stuff online. And I was able to download the specific page that I wanted and the whole article and, and everything about it. I'd already found it at the in the bound periodicals at the University of Iowa Library and had a copy of it. But I just looked it up online and it was all there. It would have been much easier than having to search through all those Scientific Americans to find it Right. Uh, when I started out on that many, many years ago. Right. And we'll get into some of that because I know, you know that your, your research in, in the UFO phenomena has changed a lot. But I wanted to get into, uh, because I haven't had you on to talk about this, is I like to say the origin stories. You know, the comic book heroes <laughs> all have their origin stories. And and your origin story about how you got into UFOs, were you bit by a, a radioactive spider? Yes, I was. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> and, and I can shoot webs out of my hands and everything. Uh, actually, no. I've always blamed my mother for this. Uh-oh. She, she was she was a fan of science fiction, and science fiction, of course, is talked about interstellar flight and alien civilizations and 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 uh, alien visitation and that sort of thing. And it's not a large step from from science fiction into UFOs, which is about uh, interstellar travel and alien visitation mm-hmm. and alien civilizations. And so she kind of fired that uh, that spark in me, and uh, I got excited about UFOs because this. This seemed to be the reality to the science fiction. And so I began uh, studying UFOs when I was a mere youngster so many years ago. And one of the things that in that time frame that always was coming up was the the skeptics, the debunkers, the Air Force was saying, well, nobody really sees anything solid. It's a vague object seen in the distance. It's some kind of a indistinct or uh, anomalous blob in the in the distance and a friend of mine's mother had seen seen a ufo and i got a chance to interview her about that and i had a single question i wanted to ask which was was it solid did you get it was it a distinct object and she said yeah i was hovering about 200 feet over the barn she lived in south dakota and it was about 200 feet over the barn and she got a very good look at it and it was very solid and the edges were very well defined and that in that investigation, that's really all I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't really interested in, in much else about it. I just wanted that bit of information. And, of course, from there, it's all sort of spun out of control 
into all these uh, investigations and all these searches for additional information. So you got into this. Well, have you had your own sighting? I used to answer that question and say no, um, but I was I was a member at one time of the Denver UFO Society when I lived out in Colorado as a in high school when I was a teenager, and a friend of mine, Eric Novotny, and I had uh, had would go out to the Denver UFO Society meetings. They had a um, get together on a ranch south of Denver near Castle Rock, and we were all sitting around in the evening around the the campfire and we saw a light travel overhead in a in what would have been a polar orbit and at the time there were no satellites in that particular orbit at that particular time it got directly overhead it flashed once and then it continued on somebody at the fire said oh they're singling us and we're thinking yeah right mm-hmm. but i mean that's the extent of my my ufo sighting and it's not a very good one and and uh, uh just a light moving across the sky that could very easily have been a satellite although we checked as best we could and could find nothing that would have been in that orbit at that time mm-hmm. uh, to explain the sighting. Nothing like the more robust sightings that lots of other people have. And that was already after my interest in UFOs, so it didn't really spark anything. Right. and But I think that's kind of cool, kind of unique. I, I, I fit in the camp with you where I got into this prior to having a sighting. So it wasn't a sighting because a lot of people, of course, are really motivated and into all of this because they they had their own spectacular sighting um like you talked about earlier over the barn but uh i was similar i didn't have my own sighting before i got into all of this i i think that that the if, if you're skeptic or debunker and you have a sighting and it's and it's not this ambiguous uh stimuli but it's something very distinct and you get a good look at it and and you know it's not a meteor and you know it's not a weather-related phenomenon. It's not some kind of advanced aircraft. You you know it's something otherworldly based on what it does and what it looks like. That's pretty much going to change your mind. You may not be able to prove to your fellow debunkers or skeptics that these things are extraterrestrial, but in your own mind, you now know what the truth is because you've had this sighting. Mm-hmm. So then, Roswell, uh, how long have you had you been, I guess, actively researching UFOs before you became uh, a Roswell researcher? I look at it from the, from the point of view, and I, I did a book called Reflections of a UFO Investigator, and it kind of lays all this stuff out. But uh, after I left home, after I graduated from high school and joined the Army, I had an opportunity to, to investigate a number of of sightings based on where I happened to be stationed uh, with the army, and and so I was studying all uh, studying these things all along. So you can say that the the first sort of um, traveling I had done to investigate a UFO sighting was back in 1968. I got a three day pass from the army and had an opportunity to go talk to Carol Wayne Watts, hmm. whose story I think is probably a hoax. He said it was a hoax, but then he then he claimed the CIA made him say that. Uh, when we transferred from Fort Walters, Texas, to Fort Rucker, Alabama, a couple of friends of mine went down into Florida. We had a chance to investigate the Brooksville sighting down there. So we're, you know we're talking about 1967, 1968 time frame. So I was actively investigating outside my comfort zone, you might say, mm-hmm. back that long ago. 
it was in 1989 that I was actually 1988. I'm sorry, 1988 that I was invited into the uh, QFOS investigation of the Roswell case. So 20 years prior to uh, getting involved in the Ros in, in Roswell investigations, I had been investigating UFOs around the country and in different arenas. So uh, 20 years before that, and then Roswell took up a great deal of time. But in, at the same time, I was doing other things as well and looking at it, into other cases. Gotcha. And then your partnership with Don Schmidt, I believe if I remember in Roswell, you told the story that it began with a, a debate. Um, yes, yes. I didn't know Don Schmidt from Adam, but there was a science fiction convention in Milwaukee, and there were going to be three science fiction writers arguing with the two guys up from QFOS about the reality of UFOs, and I was going to be with the science fiction writers talking about this. And when Don got there. The other guy couldn't make it, so it was going to be three to one. I didn't think that was fair. And in a debate, what you do is argue the best information you have. You don't necessarily provide information to the the opposition, as opposed to an investigation where you want all the information, good, bad, or indifferent. So I switched sides. I said, I'll, I'll argue with him on the reality of UFOs against Fred Pohl and I think George R. R. Martin. I think were two other guys. I'm not sure about George. George Martin, but I know I know Fred Pohl was was one of the guys on the other side. And after we had completed this debate, Don and I got to talking, and and he was going to be starting this Roswell investigation. And given my military background, he thought it would be an important thing to have because a lot of the witnesses were retired military, and a lot of the witnesses had were from from the Roswell Army Airfield in that time frame, so they would have been military. And I would have some insights into how military the military operates as opposed to a civilian who's never served served a day. And one of the first things I realized is they were talking about uh, Colonel DuBose, who was uh, Ramey's chief of staff at 8th Air Force, the, the command directly above the, the folks at Roswell. And they had been talking about DuBose being Ramey's aide, and I said, now, a brigadier general doesn't have a full colonel as an aide, and the chief of staff is a much more important position than the aide to a general officer. So, that, I mean, that was one of the one of the first things I noticed was, you know, Dubose was not an aide; he was in fact mm. uh, the chief of staff. So you were able to clear up some of these sort of things for them, which is invaluable. Yes, and could could say, you know, this guy would report to this and. You know, Walter Hott, for example, did not have the authority to issue the press release without some kind of, of um, permission from higher headquarters or from from his his higher his superior officer, specifically Colonel Blanchard. Uh, you don't have a first lieutenant taking that sort of a, um, a step without the uh, the commanding officer knowing, knowing what's going on. So when they say you know Walter Hott or Jesse Marcel prematurely made this press release about them having a flying saucer, well, it's really Colonel Blanchard who took that step because in that specific circumstance, uh, Blanchard would have known. You don't, you don't go, you don't say, I'm going to put out a press release saying we got a flying saucer uh, without getting the permission of the commanding officer to do that. Mm -hmm. What do you think, if you could, you know, if someone said, what are your top couple of points and why you think, you know, what are the most... Um, convincing couple of points to you or to anyone that, you know, Roswell was more than just a, a weather balloon or or crash test dummies dropped in the desert? 
I look at it from the point of view is, and, and, and this involves some testimony, but uh, every top officer at Roswell we were able to interview, with a single exception, told us it was some kind of alien spacecraft. Edwin Easley, who was a provost marshal, you know, think chief of police there, uh, told me at one point, I said to him, uh, are we following the right path? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, we, well, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. So, I mean, here's a guy who should have known what was going on, mm-hmm. suggesting to us that it was, it was extraterrestrial. And, and so every top officer at the base that we were able to interview at the, who was there at the time, with a single exception, said it was, it was extraterrestrial. So we've got, we've got a wide range of, of uh, testimony from the ranking officers there. The, the next point that, that is very interesting is if you look at the newspapers and you look at the feeling at the time, starting with Ken Arnold's sighting on June 24th of the, the nine objects over Mount Lanier, you see the newspapers, you see all kinds of stories from uh, scientists, military officials, governmental officials, the man in the street, trying to figure out what are the flying saucers, what's going on. Right. Lots of reports of people seeing strange stuff, hoaxes, of course, people making stuff up. But you've got a lot of sightings going on. And then you have, on July 8th, you have the story from Roswell, you know, they've got a flying saucer. And the next day, the very next day, July 9th, you get stories in newspapers around the country that say the Army and Navy moved today to suppress the stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. Why suddenly on July 9th did they care? Up to that point, they didn't care. You get quotes from military officers about what's going on uh, and speculation from them, and suddenly they're trying to stop these stories. And you have to say, well, gee whiz, what happened to cause this change of attitude? And, and of course, the answer is, is Roswell. Mm-hmm. You, see, you, you see some things like that going on. There's some documentation that's very interesting. You see a very Herculean effort for them to hide what fell at Roswell, and there's no uh, rational reason for that. Any technology we had in 1947, of course, has been far surpassed by anything we have today, so there's no reason to keep this stuff hidden. But we see a Herculean effort in 1947 for them to hide this stuff, to, to, to secure the area, to keep people out of there, to co- recover the debris. And, and that all is very suggestive of something very unusual and something that became highly classified at that time. And none of the explanations offered, including this, this nonsensical Project Mogul idea, uh, really fits that category. When you look at the Project Mogul recovery attempts, when the, the balloon's being launched, nobody made that sort of Herculean effort. There's, there's any number of stories about them attempting to recover mogul balloons, but they don't send out literally dozens of military people. They don't cordon the area. They don't try to hide what's going on. Nobody cares because the balloons just aren't that important. So uh, we've, got, we've got this whole um, mystery of what, what was so important they went to this Herculean effort to, to hide it. That's one thing that I think is interesting. One of the points you bring up is that there was a UFO fervor at the time. And when you read the stories, you can see that. When you even hear the famous radio account, they're like, what's with all these UFOs? One of them crashed in Roswell. That it was more than just an Arnold sighting. Uh, There was a lot going on, Uh, a lot of sightings happening at that time. In fact, you wrote about one recently, the Maury Island um, 
incident, which and do you feel that 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 may not uh, that may be a little dubious that report? I'm pretty sure that's a hoax. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a hoax that was driven by uh, the UFO phenomenon. But it was also driven by Ray Palmer, who edited a science fiction magazine called Amazing Stories. And in, he had been hired to turn around this, this failing science fiction magazine. And this guy named Richard Shaver had sent him a story that was right off the wall, talking about these detrimental robots that are responsible for all the evil in the world, and they're, they're hidden away in caves. And, and he had this this whole thing going about it and talking about, about ships, flying saucer-type ships like that. And so that when the Arnold thing broke, uh, Palmer jumped on this bandwagon and said, see, here's proof that, that the Shaver mystery is real. I'm not making this stuff up. And he was contacted by one of the guys involved with the Murray Island thing and got Ken Arnold involved in investigating it. And, and so Palmer was kind of pushing the, the Maury Island thing as, as reality because it helped underscore the uh, reality of the Shaver mystery. And so you've got these two things going on at once, and Palmer kind of uh, combined the two things to prove, to prove the Shaver mystery. But I think, the, I think the evidence is pretty clear based on everything that, that I have seen. And I know um, 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 Early, uh, George Early from Oregon, has done, he did a four-part series in UFO magazine about his investigations into the Maury Island case, and I think he's pretty well established that that it's a hoax. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing that makes you a little controversial when it comes to Roswell is that you have been early on one of the people to uh, quickly, uh, when you identify a, a, a hoax, to call it out and say, "Look, I don't think this is uh, you know good evidence. I think this witness is a hoax," and people get upset <laughs> when that happens. Of course, how do you feel about you know? Did it shock you at first people's reaction when you when you discover uh, that there's hoaxing going on and you call it out? Uh, people getting so upset about that sort of thing. It doesn't surprise me that there's hoaxing going on. Yeah. What surprised me is, and and, and it astonishes me repeatedly, is when you have the evidence that it's a hoax, and people just reject that evidence and come up with all kinds of convoluted reasons of why the evidence isn't as persuasive as it is. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, they talk about, well, this guy said he was in the military. Well, there's no records. Well, see, the, the government was able to, ta- to hide his records to make him look bad, and, and we would reject the story. And, and my, my rebuttal to that is it's, that's impossible. Take officers, for example. Back in the back, uh, up until the mid 1970s or 1980s, there was what was called the uh, the Army Registry or the Air Force Registry or the Naval Naval Registry, and what this was was a list of all the officers on active duty, and these are in repositories around the country. In in fact, one of the one of the things that I enjoyed doing was when I was looking that up one day, I pulled the one from 1877, and it gave a listing of all the officers killed at the Little Bighorn because they were no longer on active duty, and this is why they had been removed from the role of active duty. And so if you tell me a guy was, was on active duty in this time and his records have disappeared, well, then my next thing is, okay, I'll look at the registry, and if his, name, his name's there, then we've got something. But the names are never there. 
they say, well, there was this big fire in St. Louis and my records were burned up. But that's not the only place where there were records. And if, and if you were still on active duty in 1973 when the fire took place, your records weren't there to burn up. Um, the Air Force has an Air, Personnel Reserve, or Air Reserve Personnel Center in Denver. And a lot of the records for the Air Force guys are there. And so even if your record burned up in St. Louis, there's, there's records in Denver. Um, if you went to flight school, for example, there should be some kind of record at the place you went to flight school. When I went to flight school in, in 1968, I was able to find online, again, the Internet coming through, I was actually able to find a picture of my platoon from flight school. So if you say, well, I don't believe you were a helicopter pilot, I can point to that and say, you go to, you go to this place and here's my platoon and you read, I think I'm in the second position in the second row, there's my name. Um, there are two websites devoted to the companies I was served in in Vietnam. And you go to those sites, my name surfaces there. And in fact, in one of them, it actually talks about me um, eventually being on, well, we saw Kevin Randall, who was a member of our unit, on television doing UFO stuff. <laughs> uh, there, the other site's got a picture of me in my uh, Vietnam garb and another picture because I'd sent them one from Iraq. So they showed me in 1968 in Vietnam and 19 or 19, uh, 2003 in Iraq. So, I mean, there are ways to verify all of this stuff, but if a guy is not who he says he is, he's, he's claiming these sorts of things, that all that stuff doesn't exist for them. And there's no way the government could get to all that stuff and hide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hear a lot about that, even with, you know, like, of course, one of the big cases, Bob Lazar. Have you ran across or do you believe that uh, any of these people have been historically erased that that's actually I, I, ever happened? I can't I can't see it. It's it's there. There's a phenomenon uh, which is called stolen valor in which people and I say people, men and women, both claiming to be Vietnam veterans, claiming to be. POWs claiming to have been in special forces, whether it's the Green Berets, it's uh, Marine Recon, it's Navy SEALs, claiming all this stuff. And then they say, you, you, you try to check their records, and their records don't bear this out. And they say, well, the government doesn't like what I've said about this, and they've erased my record to make me look bad. Well, that's crap. It, it just cannot be done. There is too much ancillary information. If, for example, you were to write to St. Louis to try to get my military record, and they wrote back and said, we got no record of this guy, I, I can even provide you with copies of, of, um, of travel vouchers that we had to fill out to be reimbursed for expenses on, on military travel. I've got copies of orders. I've got all kinds of documents to prove this. I actually have written to St. Louis as my mother-in-law to see what kind of information I would get in return, uh, to see how how badly mangled it is. And when I wrote for my Air Force record, it had me as a first lieutenant. And I realized that it's because when I left um, Richards Gebauer, they, they issued a DD Form 214 about that, and I was only a, a first lieutenant at the time. And, and so they picked up the, the record from uh, the information from my Army service for the DD Form Form 214. So when they when I wrote to St. Louis, it only pulled that information for Air Force. If you write for my Army record, you get uh, a whole different uh, story. So uh, it, I mean, the information is all there. But if you weren't who you said, your records aren't going to be there. 
And, and if you couldn't find that, I can point to other places you can go independent of me to, to verify what I say, and these people can't do that. It all relies on what they say and documents they produce. Mm-hmm. What one hoaxer do you think has done the biggest damage to the Roswell story? Man, the biggest. Are there too many? Uh, unfortunately, I would I I would get there. There are two that spring to mind immediately: Frank Kaufman, of course, mm-hmm. and then Gerald Anderson. And I think I think both of them have done a great deal of damage to it. Kaufman may be the worst because Kaufman was there in in Roswell and talking about the events in Roswell where. Anderson's talking about stuff over on the plains of San Augustine, which is sort of an ancillary part of the Roswell case. I, I guess Frank Kaufman would be the worst. Mm-hmm. Now, he is generally accepted for the most part right as as someone who is a hoaxer. Are there still people who believe, who yeah. believe in his story? Yeah, and this is what strikes me as incredible. Um you know, I believed the story in the beginning. I mean, Frank Kaufman would present it with documentation when, when needed, and and things like that, and, and, and he seemed to be a very credible witness. Uh, one of the things is the yearbook was produ- that was produced in Roswell in 1947 had a picture of Frank Kaufman in there getting a medal. Well, looking, looking at the medal closely, it appears now to be a World War II victory medal, which they gave to everybody who served in the, in the U.S. military during the, during the Second World War. So I don't know why there was some kind of presentation of this medal to him in Roswell in 1947, but I mean, he's in the yearbook, so they, I mean, this this makes him look credible. But as we as we investigated further, we did, you know we found we found the evidence, we found the things, the the separation papers that he provided to us. We found the the real copies, and they didn't match up. Uh, we found that he wasn't in intelligence as he claimed; he was an administrator uh, in administration. We found he hadn't been a master sergeant as he claimed, but he was. A staff sergeant. So there, there were a lot of things that were, were wrong with what he said. So we, and when I say we, I know uh, Mark Rodiker and I did a big story for the International UFO Reporter about this, and it's come out otherwise. And people still say to me, well, how do you know Frank Kaufman was an agent of disinformation? No, he was just a guy who plugged himself into the Roswell case for the the spotlight that it brought to him and the financial rewards. And I know that he was paid for interviews on a number of occasions. So there was a financial reward, and there was then he got to see his face on TV. Mm-hmm. But but the thing is, uh, there are people who still think there's something real to his story. That well, he's got part of it right. We should listen to what he had to say. No, we reject everything he has to say. If we can't corroborate it from another source, and we got it from another source, then we don't need Frank Kaufman. And and that's the, the, it's the sad thing. And I can point to any number of cases where. The originator of the hoax has admitted that it was a hoax. They've signed documents that it was a hoax, and we still argue those points. Uh, the Allende letters come to mind. Mm-hmm. The guy, the guy went to APRO and said, "I made the whole thing up and signed a document." And then years later, he decided he wanted he, he wanted to retract his his uh, statement. But everything that you can find about it suggests this thing is a hoax. And yet, here we are in 2012 still arguing about the reality of the Allende letters. Uh, one of the things he, they said, he said in, in one of the annotated books 
was arguing about this airplane, the Stardust, that disappeared in 1952, I think it was. Maybe, or maybe it was 1948, I forget it. Disappeared in South America. And in the Allende Letters book, uh, there's an annotation about this, and it said that they, the, the, the airplane had gotten too close to the sh uh, one of their ships and it was destroyed. Well, the wreckage of the plane was found eventually, uh, around uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago. They found the wreckage, and what happened is they flew into a mountain. And so if Yendi was who he said he was, they'd have known that. So it's just, it's just that sort of thing. And, 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 you, and you provide that information, and they say, yeah, but what about this? What about that? Allende, Allende by the way, gets us to the Philadelphia experiment. So that's, that's where right. people want to keep uh, talking about this. But the guy made it up. He said he made it up. I did a story about it, the Allende letters, in official UFO magazine in the mid-1970s. And uh, uh, Carlos Allende, Carl Allen, uh, read the article and sent a copy of it, annotated back to the publisher. And the publisher sent me a copy of I've got a, one of my stories that Carlos Allende actually annotated <laughs> about, about, the, uh, about the story. But, but you find out things. Uh, the, 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 the myth is that the Navy was very interested in the Allende letters when they got them. Well, it turns out that's not quite right. What happened was, Two guys who worked for the Office of Naval Research were interested in it, and the Navy had no um, uh, had had no reason to reject them from working on it if they wanted to. They didn't, you know, if they wanted to go ahead and work on it on their own time, as long as Navy funds weren't involved, they didn't care. The Navy didn't care, and so it, it comes out that the Navy was very interested in this thing, and they did all this research. Well, that's not really quite accurate. The two guys in the Navy, and the fact they were in the Navy. Followed them. I, I mean, I had a similar circumstance where I was investigating some alleged landings in Iowa, and I, I was also in the Air Force Reserve at the time, but I was doing it as a private citizen. But somebody saw the uh, bumper sticker on my car for the base and told the media that the Air Force had been out to investigate their UFO sighting. Well, no, it was me. Mm -hmm. Wasn't the Air Force? The fact that my they just they just saw the bumper sticker and made an assumption that wasn't true. And, and, a, and a lot of that goes on, that people make these assumptions that aren't true and, and keep these things alive when they, we should have driven the stake through the hearts of them long ago and stopped the investigations and moved on to more lucrative areas of investigation. That's what seems to be, at least, is, is frustrating, I think, is really frustrating when it comes to Roswell research, is that people will hold on to these hoaxes so tightly when it's not necessary, there are a small number of hoaxes as opposed to all of the incredible witnesses that uh, you all as a Roswell dream team, you know, you and, and Don Schmidt and uh, um, Tom Carey and, and if you include uh, Sam Freeman, I mean, the number of witnesses you guys have gotten is pretty impressive. You don't need those those hoaxes in that mix to, to no, put and, together and, and, a and case. And, and it hurts, and it hurts because a lot of times people only remember the hoaxes. Mm -hmm. uh, think of Bill Buckner. What does everybody remain, remember about Bill Buckner? Well, he was playing first base, and the ball went between his between his legs, and allowed the other team to score a run, and they ended up winning the World Series. They don't remember the probably hundreds of great plays Bill Buckner made. They remember that one thing. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a movie Tin Cup with Kevin Costner uh, about the U.S. Open, and he was trying to drive the ball over this 
this water hazard and kept dropping the ball. And, uh, and, and at the end of the movie, the, his girlfriend says, nobody, you know, in 10 years, nobody's going to remember who won the U.S. Open this year. They're going to remember year 12 on that hole. And, and it's the same thing. You know, they don't remember all the good witnesses that we have, all the good testimony we have. They remember, ah, oh, well, you know, Frank Kaufman was telling a lie about this. So, uh, you know, that really hurts hurts the investigation. And then people hanging on to it, wanting to believe that there's something something there that we should that we should uh, follow on. There's something there that we need to, to to research. And I'm thinking, no, not with not with that. We need to move into arenas that are going to pay off in a good way. Mm-hmm. It's funny you bring up the golf because, you know, just this last weekend, of course, at the the Masters, the big news is Tiger screws up, Mickelson screws up, and you know the the big news isn't the people who won, uh, and the great news. So that's so let's move on to good news instead of the bad stuff, I guess. <laughs> which is what I think is an incredible movie. It's one of my favorite just overall movies in general, just because I I love that someone made a movie about some real research, and that's 1994, uh, the Roswell movie, that you're credited as one of the writers. You got to help with research on this movie. What was that experience like, and how did it start? How did it happen? Well, first of all, let me let me say this. And mm-hmm. I, I find it incredible that if you look me up on the Internet Movie Database, I'm actually there. I know, <laughs> along with all the Hollywood stars. You know, I, I think, I'm on the Internet Movie Database for crying out about right. Well, I'm what famous. Ha- what happened? What happened is uh, Don and I you know, wanted to do uh, after I, I think our, uh, our first trip to Roswell. We were driving down the Interstate 25, heading toward the airport, and I said to Don, "You know, we could do a book about this. Uh, we've got to do a lot more research, but we've got to do a book." So I'm now in the process of trying to convince a publisher that they should publish this book, and we knew Paul David's. Um, from from California, he had a UFO sighting that was very interesting, by the way. His wife worked at Columbia Pictures, and I said uh, to Don, if we can get Paul Davids or his wife, just to you know, suggest that there, the, you know, this this story interests them, we might be able to convince a publisher to um, publish the book. And what happened was Paul Davids got really excited about the project. <laughs> And thought it was a good idea, so he put together a, uh, what they call a treatment and went around to his contacts in California to try to sell the the movie idea. Uh, eventually, uh, HBO was going to do it, uh, but they decided not to, and I I don't know what the real reason was, but uh, he he eventually got it sold to uh, Showtime and and so we had an opportunity to provide the research for for the movie. I got to be on the set as the military advisor and one of the technical advisors, and Don was on the set as one of the technical advisors. And we got, uh, you know, it was based on the uh, book UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt, which was kind of a neat thing to do. So we got the opportunity to uh, watch them make a movie. We got an op- got an opportunity to be in the movie. Unfortunately, I'm kind of hard to see, and Don has his back to the camera. If you know Don, you know it's him. Um, and if you look at the right place, you can see me in the film. Uh, and 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 you know, we got to see the the dailies uh, every night while we were down in filming in Arizona. Cool. They would have the have the dailies at one of the ho- the the hotel room, and 
I got there late one night for some reason. I don't know why I didn't get there right when they started the dailies. And I walked into the room, and the director said, and I, I couldn't believe this. He said, oh, start over. Kevin got it. just got here. I'm thinking, oh, wow. I'm thinking, wow, this is really nice. <laughs> right. You're going to have to make everybody sit through this stuff again so I can see it from the beginning, <laughs> which was kind of cool. But we, you know, I had, we got an opportunity to provide input on it. I would uh, tell the director, um, this isn't exactly the way the military would do it. I was helping the costumers make sure the military uniforms were right. And one day I wasn't on the set. They put, put uh, insignia on the collar of Marcel's, Marcel's uniform that was incorrect. Oh, and then, I, then I, of course, I have my great, my great Kyle McLaughlin story. The first day we're on the set, he comes out in his, his major um, Marcel uniform, and he says, is this right? And I said, well, you've got the, the major's leaf on uh, sideways, and I fixed that, and I fixed the other insignia. And I realized his gig line was off, which, which is the, uh, you know, the line along the shirt down past the belt buckle into the fly of the trousers. And the belt buckle was off. So I reached down and started unbuckling his pants. Oh, wow. And, and my, my, my thought was, you know, how many women would love to do this? And then my second thought was, you know, maybe I shouldn't be unbuckling his pants. <laughs> so I, I said, well, we can fix your gig line. I said, no, go ahead and fix it. So I, I adjusted his belt buckle so the gig line was proper. Um, so, I mean, it, this is a great thing. We got an opportunity to meet, meet with a number of, of very famous people, uh, not only Kyle McLaughlin, uh, Dwight Yoakam got a got to have a nice couple of nice chats with him. Xander Berkeley, I didn't really know who he was at the time. And I said, so I wanted to get an idea of what movies he'd been in prior to this one. So I said to him, what are some of your favorite movie roles? Thinking, you know, and <laughs> I'm not saying, well, I don't know what you've been in. Tell me. It was, you know, what, what do you like? And he said, well, he got killed by the Terminator in Terminator 2. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's who this is. <laughs> so, and he, oh, he said he, he'd sent Tom Cruise to uh, Cuba in A Few Good Men. So he's got a, he's got a role, a small role in, in that film as well. So. Next time I, I, I saw a few good men, I made sure that I would see his role uh, in that. We got to go to a couple of Hollywood premieres because of that, uh, and we got to go to the premiere of the uh, Rosmo movie, which was kind of kind of interesting. We got to meet Robert Wise, who'd done um, The Day They Were Stood Still. He'd come to the premiere of our movie. Oh, cool. Got to meet him and you know, things like that. So, you know, the movie got got all of this stuff, and it was really kind of neat being on the set and watching them doing it and, and, and realizing they spend all day. They spend 12, 14 hours, and if they get three minutes of film, they're happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this stuff, you get three minutes of film and, and the elaborate processes of, of, of setting things up and making sure the scenes are right, and, and then you go, you go on the Internet Movie Database and, and you've got all this stuff about the continuity being off in movies, you know. And the, you, you're not filming the thing in sequence, so you might yeah. film a scene outside and then three weeks later, a month later, you're filming the inside scene. So when the guy walks through the door, it seems seamless, but the scenes may have been filmed weeks apart. And so they're taking Polaroid pictures so they can try to get the costuming to look the same and all of that. And, and it's just an incredible process. And so you, 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 get a, you get an idea of how hard and difficult it is. And then you see the, <laughs> the Internet people with, well, in this movie, uh, his tie was on this way, and when he walked out the door, it was on this way. Well, yeah, yeah uh, big whoop, you know. Uh, yeah, you take some of the magic out of the out of the movie that way, but it mm-hmm. it was an incredible process to see all the 
uh, the, the Herculean effort to go to get this stuff right. And, but but it, again, at one point I said to the director that there was something not quite right. Uh, I, well, they were addressing um, one of the one of the people wrong, uh, not not in a military way of doing that. And the director says, you know, we're making a movie here, not a documentary. <laughs> and I said, yeah, okay, uh, I I get it. Um, you know, if so so again, when you watch a movie about a historical event, you have to think in your mind they're making a movie. Right. Not a documentary. So they play with the facts a little bit uh, for, for the context of the movie. If they're making a documentary, then they need to get the stuff right. But if they're making a movie, well, you know, they're doing it for the flow of the movie. They may combine characters so that you don't end up with uh, 15 characters when you only need three to really move the plot along and things like that. I mean, it's hard to keep track of all the characters and all of this stuff uh, when you're watching the movie, so it's nice to have those sorts of things, but but it was a really interesting process to watch them uh, make the movie. And I, like I said, I got to I got to sit around all day in costume as a 1947 reporter. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Waiting for my big role, my big yeah. opportunity to go into the movies. And then Martin Sheen, of course, in it. Who for the younger people, that's Charlie Sheen's dad. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the and the, my favorite scene in any movie is in what. Um, um, uh, the 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 movie with with both the Sheens in it where he's he's um, um, one of the parodies of the military movies and they're both go, one's going up river one's going down river and they look at each other and they both yell I loved you in Wall Street oh that's uh, pretty funny <laughs> you know so and I can't remember the name of the movie at the moment what I love about the movie like you said you know Hollywood plays with things to bring some drama to it that it's not like they said it's not a documentary but what i love about it is that it, it's based on research so there's a lot of what really or what you will uh, have found to have have happened um dwight yoakam also was a great mac brazel whenever i think of mac <laughs> brazel i think of dwight yoakam but um, and, and, and the big controversy about that was is is we had pictures of of Dwight Yoakam without his hat on, so we realized everybody realized he was going bald. <laughs> oh, how funny! Yep. So he left his hat on. I don't think he had any scenes without the hat, huh? Well, no, he had he, in in a couple of scenes he didn't have his hat on. Oh, okay. And, and I remember seeing in a newspaper or reading in one of the tabloids or something about this, and it was it was the big deal that you know oh, here's wow. pictures of Dwight Yoakam without his hat on, and it was from our movie. How funny. So how do you think it holds up? To me, it seems like, you know, that's what's neat about it is it feels like, you know, with this event and uh, what seemingly happened, some of these behind-the-scenes discussions with the military and uh, um, government officials were probably similar to what might have really, these conversations might have really been like. I think part of the thing that they were doing is attempting to find a way to move the um, story along. Mm-hmm. And they did it with composite characters, adding quotes. Jesse Marcel Sr., of course, never investigated the Roswell case. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the movie, he became, he became the, the, the way of moving the story forward, that he's looking right. for these various aspects of the case. Uh, so they set it in a dramatic environment, but they tried to hold it, the, the facts of the case as best they could to what we knew in 1994 about about the case. So you might have a character who doesn't didn't exist in real life, um, 
of talking about part of the story to move it forward, but it's a com- composite of two or three characters. I know in the movie, um, Glenn Dennis didn't want, wouldn't sign the release to allow his name to be used in the movie. Oh, so right. In, I did notice his name is different, and I don't think I ever asked about that. Yeah, well, that, and, and the, he wouldn't sign the, re, the release. So what they did was they used Paul David's name because um, Glenn Dennis is like two first names, and Paul David's is like two first names. <laughs> right. So, so they did a play on Paul David's name in the film. You know, it's David Paul or Paul David's or something like that. You know, they say like that. And so the, he became the, the mortician who tells the story about ordering the or, or getting the call about the small coffins. And so they tried to uh, maintain the factual framework of the story, but put it in a fictional, con- fictional context. And like I said, you know, it, the, the director, uh, Jeremy Kagan, was well aware of what he was doing, uh, making a movie and not a documentary. If the two collided, the, the, the factual basis collided with the um, uh, framework of the story, well, then he went with the story, and, and, and that's exactly right. He was making a movie. If he was making a documentary, then he would have been required to stick with the facts, but mm-hmm. since he was making a movie, he could bend them to fit the framework of his film. How did you feel with the results? Oh, I love the movie. Yeah, I love it too. I uh, well, I especially love watching the opening opening credits where it says "based on the book by Kevin Randall." You watch that part <laughs> over and over again. Oh yeah, free frame <laughs> on that. Let's get pictures of that, and and then of course uh, at the at the end, uh, watching the closing credits, look for my name crawling across the closing credits. <laughs> right. But going to what about uh, the middle stuff in between the credits? Did you like that? Did that turn out all right? <laughs> yeah, that was that was good too. <laughs> But but going to going to uh, premieres, I got to go to a couple of Hollywood premieres uh, because Paul Davids had invitations and he took Don and me to a couple of Hollywood premieres. And what I found interesting is how the the audiences would applaud the names as they came up on the uh, on the screen, you know, directed uh-huh. by yay, you know, that, that sort of thing. And 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 they sit there quietly and watch the movie and they sit there through the the closing credits. Nobody walked out when the credits ran. All right. The credits. Like in a regular movie, everybody, ah, who cares about the credits and they leave. But in, right. in the Hollywood, when they're at the premiere, they watch the credits and they watch them quietly and they applaud for people. Cool. Did you get some applause? Yes, but only because I started it. Oh, okay. So you <laughs> clapped then. Everybody was like, I was oh, clapping for me good. and everybody yeah. picked it up. Yeah, yeah, Randall, way to go. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> What about the aftermath? Did you have um, a lot of people coming to you afterwards, uh, maybe more witnesses or some um, maybe well-known people uh, or high-ranking people who came to you to talk about uh, the film? Not after the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, after after some of the documentaries, yeah. We, okay. we we found people after the documentaries and people came forward. That was how Gerald Anderson appeared, as a matter of fact, after Unsolved really? Mysteries had done the um, – program about about Roswell. Gerald Anderson sent both me and Stan Friedman a letter. I just happened to talk to um, talk to him first uh, about his alleged involvement. And but but some some of that's how we we learned of it. But a lot of the witnesses that we found, we went out and searched for. We had that yearbook that that Walter Hott had produced in 1947. What a tool that turned out to be because here's a list of um I forget what the number is, maybe 2,500 people who were assigned to the base. Uh, we've, got, we've got pictures of them and a list of their names. 
there was a, a phone book uh, that had been produced for the base uh, in 1947. So we had the names of a lot of the officers uh, in, in that phone book. And one of the reasons I point that out is a woman named Elaine Vay, who contacted us after the Unsolved Mysteries program, said her uncle, Darwin Rasmussen, had been at the base in 1947. And so we looked him up in the yearbook, and he's not there, but he is in the phone book. Hmm. So Walter had told me that 10 to 15, 20% of the people who were assigned to the base in 1947 weren't in the yearbook. But we could we could place Darwin Rasmussen there because we found his name in the uh, in the telephone directory, and so we would we would go down these lists of names. I went I tried to find the people in the MP squadrons, for example, to talk to them about what their involvement might have been. So we had a list of a lot of those people, and, and we're continuing to follow that uh, today, looking for people who were appeared in the yearbook. Now we're now we're 20 years down the road, and we're talking to guys who are 90. Um, and when we can find them alive, or we're talking to family members about what the the family members may have, uh, the, their their relatives may have said to them about the Roswell case. But we we still find some people uh, alive today who who can tell us a little bit about this. Uh, what what what's happened to me in the last um, couple of months and the people I've talked to? I talked to one guy who was in. Uh, Minnesota. If I remember correctly, he was in Minnesota, and I thought, well, he'd be a Vikings fan. Turned out he was a Green Bay fan. <laughs> kind of surprised me. But I uh, talked to him briefly, and he said, well, no, he wasn't really directly involved, but some of his friends were, and they told him a little bit about it. So, I mean, wow. I, I, I found a guy who was alive from that time frame who talked about what he, what his impressions were, what was going on at the base at the time. And I know... I know. Uh, what were his uh, impressions? Does he believe that... Um... Oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Really? I mean, he talked to his friends and told him that they had been involved in it and that, like that. I, I found an MP um, who wasn't involved, and he said when they when his friends told him about it, he didn't believe them until he saw the story in the newspaper. Oh, and wow. that tells me it tells me that the the guys were out cordoning off the area prior to Walter Hot's press release, and they came back into the barracks and were talking about what they had seen, and, and the guy says I I didn't believe him until I saw the story in the newspaper. Wow. Um, there was a, another guy, a guy named Piles, uh, Corporal E. Piles, and he talked about seeing something in the sky, traveling across the sky one night. And he said he wasn't, he didn't think much about it until he saw the article in the newspaper a couple of days later. And thought, well, that might have been the thing, uh, which, which is interesting because Carl Flock in his book was making, explaining how Don and I had made up this story about Piles and what he'd seen and what he'd done. And uh, Piles couldn't even remember uh, what time of year it was and, and even what year it had happened. And then like two paragraphs later, in, in, in Carl's book, the guy says, you know, a couple of days later when I saw the object, I saw the article in the newspaper, I realized that might have been the thing I saw. I'm thinking, well, gee whiz, that puts it in the first week of July, just like we said. And the skeptics can't seem to read from, you know, halfway down the page from... He's saying you guys couldn't even – the guy couldn't even remember what time of year and year it was, and three paragraphs later, he's pinned it down to a specific week in July of 1947. Right. So the Roswell Dream Team, um, I wanted to get to that. This is something new uh, that you and uh, Don and Tom have gotten together, and I think a couple of people have uh, been added to the team too. How did this come about and, and why now? Tom, 
Kerry, uh, after we had talked out in Roswell, mm-hmm. um, called me one day and wanted to do, wanted to, uh, it was something I had thought about as well. And in fact, I'd actually approached a publisher before we got down to Roswell this last time, suggesting we do the definitive Roswell book, look at all the evidence, look at everything we've got today, put it in perspective as we understand it today. Uh, the skeptical arguments, the, 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 the Air Force arguments, all of this stuff. And Tom called me, and he had a similar idea and thought that he and I should get together to uh, put together this book. And I said, okay. Um, and, and we made a deal that uh, if I sold the book, my name would go first. If he sold the book to his publisher, his name would go first. And we talked about this, and he says, well, we've got to get Don involved in this. And I said, yeah, yeah, we, we've got to. So we, uh, you know, he, he talked to Don about this, and Don, Don, of course, came right on board. And then as we were thinking about it later on, we said, you know, there are some other people who should be involved in this. Uh, David Rudiak, for example, who's done all that work on the Ramey Memo. Uh, we need to get his take on this thing and, and bring his uh, information to bear on this problem. Because if we can get a consensus on what the Ramey memo says uh, by, by disinterested parties, for example, uh, we've got a document that we've got a clear provenance for because Ramey's holding it in his fist, and we know when the picture was taken because we've got the documentation from the Bettman Photo Archives. And so here's a document with a clear provenance, and if we can just decipher what it says to the satisfaction of the majority of the people, then we've got a nice piece of evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And just for people who might not know, it's one of the pictures, uh, the famous pictures, black and white pictures, uh, where they're holding the uh, radar. Or yeah, well, they've got the weather balloon. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the picture's taken in Ramey's office. There's two pictures of Ramey, two pictures of Ramey and DuBose, and two pictures of Jesse Marcel. And in the pictures with Ramey in them, uh, he's holding he's holding a piece of paper in his hand. Well, it turned out, in one of those pictures, it's turned in such a way that you can actually, if you've got a blow-up of the picture, you know, a kid with a, with a magnifying glass can read some of the words. I mean, it, clearly there, you can read part of it, but a lot of it is very obscured. Which words it, are you confident about? Well, there's, there's only really, there's five words that, that at, at this point in the investigation, since we're kind of re-looking at this, there's five words. That, I think there's one point where it says Fort Worth, Texas, and there's another point where it says weather balloons. Mm-hmm. And the balloon is misspelled, but mm-hmm. I mean those those jump out at you, mm-hmm. and so truly you can read part of this. Uh, uh, some of the other stuff you can you can read. Yeah, uh, it looks like it says that it may, but in today's environment, as we improve our techniques, we might be able to get more and more of this. Mm-hmm. And I know it's being looked at from a number of different points of view by a number of different. Um, investigators, not just uh, Dr. Rudiak, but, but some other people are attempting to get independent corroboration of what this says. And if we can get two or th- if we can get three or four of those people, we can get a consensus of what it says, uh, depending on what it says. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Rudiak says there's one point where it says victims of the wreck. Well, that's pretty specific. Right, and discs recovered. Yes, yeah, that's pretty specific. There's, there's others who say that the, the um, victims of the wreck is actually remains of the wreck. Well, that's, mm. that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can get a consensus on some of those sorts of things from independent, re- uh, not researchers, but in, well, independent researchers who are disinterested in the Roswell case, then we've, we've got a very, very good piece of evidence 
to look at. So, uh, you know, we're looking, we're looking at all that sort of thing. I'd spent some time trying to get the notums, which are notices to airmen, uh, which, were pu- which are published all the time. And what they, you know, what they are is uh, hazards to aerial navigation, uh, changes in airport runways, runways are out of service for whatever reason, um, things like that. And so I was looking to get to see if the notums for July, June and July of 1947 still existed anywhere. And just today, as a matter of fact, I heard from the FOIA officer at the FAA uh, who said that um, all those documents have been long destroyed. Um, not, not improperly, uh, the, the, the notums have a, a shelf life, and they would wrote, routinely purge their files of the notums. There's no repository for them. There was no archive. Nobody thought to save them, especially back in 1947, because who would care? So just today we learned that that avenue of the investigation has now been shut down, and it's not going. There, there's one other um, bit of information about the notums that may may come into play, but but we're not going to be able to uh, document anything from the from the notums from the FAA. So you know, it's kind of one of the breaks of the game. It's exciting, though, that you guys still work on this. You're still making discoveries. And I think, what, of course, what would be ironic, and from talking to you and, and Don and Tom, I, I've had them on the show as well, and, you know, talking to you all in Roswell, is that it's possible that this still may be the case, that that breaks stuff open. You still have the chance of discovering some some evidence that is just uh, like the the memo or other pieces that you're working on that may be the one to really break this open and and show that it's it's credible to the public. Well, we're, and we're looking we're looking we're looking at the stuff that has gone on before us. I mean, I've mm-hmm. got literally hours and hours of taped interviews with witnesses. Well, let's see if there was something somebody said early on that we missed because at the time it seemed unimportant. But now is incredibly important uh, from what we've learned from that from that point. Mm. So we go back and are reviewing all of that sort of thing. Um, I know some of the stuff that we're we're finding in newspapers about the Mogul project and what Irving Newton, who was the weather officer at, at um, Fort Worth, said about this in 1947, as opposed to what he said much later. We're, we're finding out there's a real contradiction there. And, and and that's becoming very important about the about the frequency that these um, uh, uh, weather balloons with the radar reflectors were launched around the country. We find out that even though they said in in the mid 1990s, well, they didn't use them very often and they were very unusual and sort of thing. According to the newspapers back in 1947, it wasn't that unusual, and a lot of places launched them. So we can go back, and, and in fact, Newton says that in one of his quotes, saying that in one of the newspaper articles. So we can go back and look at that stuff. Right. Well, we're about out of time. Um, it was a lot of fun. You're working on a new book, it looks like. Uh, I had mentioned Murray Island, and that's going to be in there, including uh, this Rhodes photograph taken in, in July 7, 1947, in Phoenix, the area I'm living in, which is a really cool photo, and You've done some great work there, which people can read at your site, kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Yes, they can. Mm-hmm. They can go. They can go. They can go to Amazon.com, and if they've got a Kindle or an iPad with a Kindle app on it, they can download the Reflections of a UFO Investigator and begin reading it almost immediately. <laughs> Excellent. And then they can also go to IMDb. 
and read all about you and, and the movie star uh, business you've you've gotten yourself into. <laughs> yeah, it just cracks me up. I'm 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 in I'm up there with people like Paul Newman. I'm at the Internet yeah. Movie Database. It cracks me up. And then uh, your Amazon bio I saw said you hope to be in the Amazing Race. Yeah, I didn't remember saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, I've always I've always enjoyed the Amazing Race. I know the guy I should go go on it with a friend of mine named Tim Bance who uh, has been a boating writer for. 25, 30 years, and they're always sending him around the world to uh, boating shows and things like that. And I thought, here's a guy that would know the ins and outs of working the airport systems to get us to locations as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've always said if I was going to go on one of these shows, I think it would be the amazing race because that looks like it would be the most fun. Yeah, well, you're in IMDb, so you're also eligible to be on Dancing with the Stars now, I think. I did not know that. I think so. I will tell you that if, if they ever got that far down the list, <laughs> I would find a reason not to be on it. <laughs> not one you're looking forward to. No, but but Sean Johnson, who won the gold medal in the Olympics uh, in gymnastics from, from Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, she, she won Dancing with the Stars. So I well, say that because I live in Iowa. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I think, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, so hopefully you'll uh, come back and we can catch up on more of what you're always up to. You have the phone number. Yep, I sure do. (laughs) Keep it on file. Yes, there you go. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining me again, everybody. That wraps up our show And no worries, we're still going to be around. We're still going to be here doing shows. UFO Think Tank rocks. And, of course, for all of the news that I talked about earlier, you can find that at ufodailynews.com. You're going to need to make this your new source for UFO news if you haven't already. Beautiful site, ufodailynews.com. You can get to UFO Think Tank there. Also, you're going to have stories on the front page, but at the top... You're going to see the UFO news feed, and if you go to that, you're going to see several stories. I mean, this is up to date. If you go here hourly, you will get the latest and the best news, and you're just going to be floored. You're going to be like, how does he do it? This is amazing. I am up to date by the minute with the UFO news going on. How can I get anything better? And you can't, because it doesn't get any better than UFO dailynews.com also maybe next week but very soon i'm going to have more exciting news because as things change sure they're different sure you're scared you're thinking what am i going to do without jason i love jason jason's going to be around he's my good buddy i'm sure we're going to have him on the show again we're going to get him back but change can be good because there's going to be new and different things going on and it is going to be exciting. Speaking of new and different, I really need to give a shout-out to my good buddy uh, who gave me actually a new clothes song, which you're going to hear in a, in a second. And that is uh, written by these cool dudes named Nick Reyes and Pablo Andres Vivas. Vivas Pablo, I love the name. Anyway, thank you, Pablo, sent me this music. I loved it, and I'm going to be using it for my close music. So thank you very much for joining us once again with UFO Think Tank Radio, and we will talk to you next week, people. Adios! <laughs>